All right, turn to the book of Job. I'm going to speak in Job for a couple of weeks, and I'm going to do this much like I did with the, the series that we did on David. I'm just going to pick some um, uh, uh, themes throughout Job. I don't want to go uh, through it uh, extensively, but I want to spend some time here in the book of Job. And so we're going to go to the fifth chapter of Job. If you'd like to turn there, that'd be helpful. And I'm going to look at the fifth chapter and read just a few verses, then we're going to jump over to the sixth chapter. Uh, it's all tied together in the first uh, opening uh, books of Job. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool take root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far away from safety, crushed in the court without a defender. Drop down to verse 6. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born of trouble, as surely as the sparks fly upward. Now drop over to the sixth chapter, if you will. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed, and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have seemed impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Is tasteless food eaten without salt, or is there flavor in the white of an egg? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have this consolation my joy and unrelenting pain that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. Lord, at his blessing of the reading of Scripture, you may be seated. Let's say this together. The grass withers, all right? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Father, we pray that as we look at this this morning, it's uh, something that's... that's touched all of our lives. We've all been through difficult times and struggles. And uh, we pray, Lord, that, uh, that as we look at Scripture, there's a, a great learning there because our faith speaks to this. Our faith speaks to the victory we have in Christ. So we pray, Lord, that as we, we open up these things in the next several weeks, that uh, we would be able to, through your Holy Spirit, learn new truths or, or deep truths and that it might be that which comforts our hearts and the, and the things that we find ourselves going through, sometimes week after week and month after month, sometimes year after year, but uh, to know that uh, we have a faith that uh, conquers everything. So we pray that. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us as we look at this this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> In the uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth, you find that famous line that is spoken, it says this, and I'll put it on the screen. Each new morn, new widow's howl. 
new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. That's literally true. That's literally true. I met with a missionary this week, and uh, he was, he, they were a mission that worked with uh, orphans all over the world and trying to place them in indigenous churches. And uh, he was showing me pictures of the streets of the different nations of the world and all the children that were in this. They just went out and started taking pictures of all the children that are, that are sleeping in the, the streets and have no place to go, orphans. And uh, we, we spent some time in prayer, and, and, uh, but that's literally true. There's uh, new orphans all the time. And they're being born day after day after day. And that's why it's such a famous quote. That's why it's such a famous quote. Suffering is inevitable. And there's perhaps no work in literature that I know of that faces the question of suffering with the same honesty or the same realism or the same wisdom as the book of Job. And so I like to look at this book for a couple of weeks here. The two questions that sufferers often feel when they're in the midst of suffering is, why is this happening to me? And the second question is, how am I going to get through it? Why and how? So we learn from Scripture that Job was a devout man. He, was, he suddenly lost everything, his family, his health, his, all of his wealth was just destroyed. So I want to look today at the question of how do you bear suffering? Not, I'm not going to deal with the why so much as how do you bear suffering? And the answer to that question is comfort. The answer to that question is comfort. But there's a, a limit to what comfort can do. For example, a shock absorber. You all have those on your cars. You drive down the street. The, the, the shock absorber doesn't eliminate the bumps in the road, but it keeps the car from being shaken to pieces in the Michigan potholes that we have. In the same way, you have sources of comfort in your life when you go through suffering. That not, they don't eliminate the suffering, uh, but they make the suffering so that you're not shaken to pieces in your life. And the usual place that you go for comfort, and, and I'm sure this is true of all of us here, is family. We go to family, or we go to friends that we have, and this is no, no different with, with Job. He, his wife comes to him, and she gives him some wonderful comfort, curse God and die. And I'm not sure how their, what their relationship was like. Lost myself here, there. And then his three friends come, you know, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You know what? I've never heard anybody name their kids Zophar. No. So they show up in basically chapter 3 through chapter 30. They're yapping back and forth with Job. They're trying to comfort him, understand the suffering, and they do a terrible job. It's so bad that in the 16th chapter, Job says to them, You're miserable comforters. You're miserable. You're not helping me. So let's look at miserable comfort just for a moment and see what, what the scripture says. Eliphaz speaks to Job in chapters 4 through 5. Job answers Eliphaz in chapters 6 through 7. And we have a slice of both. So Eliphaz starts to counsel. It's in chapter 5, verse 1 that we read. Call if you will, but who's going to answer you? To which of the holy ones are you going to turn? He's heard Job crying out. He's been, you know, uh, he's in agony before God. And he says, look, forget it. Forget it. Stop it. Just stop it. God's not listening to you, you know. Not even his angels, his holy ones, they're not listening to you either. Why? Well, he tells us in verse 2 and through verse 6. 
He says to Job, because you're a fool. Well, there's some great words. That comforts me. You're a fool. You know? Now, in the Bible, a fool is a person who is disobedient to God, self-centered, therefore he's foolish. That's how they describe it. And notice he says in verse 2, he says, you know, fools, he says, die. And then in verse 3, he says, I myself have seen a fool taking roots. Now, what does that mean? I myself have seen a fool taking root. That means that fools can prosper for a little while. That's what that means. It, they take root for a little while. Just like Job. He says, just like you, Job. <laughs> He's calling Job a fool. You took root for a little while. You had a lot of stuff. Now you don't. So you're a fool. But eventually their house is cursed. Their children are whisked away. Uh, th- this is pretty cold comfort. <laughs> this isn't real good comfort that is being given here. So Eliphaz laid down a principle. It's in Job chapter 4, if you want to look at it, in verse 7. He says this. I put it on the screen for you. Who being innocent ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and sow trouble reap it. Hey, he says, innocent people don't go through this. Innocent people don't perish. The upright aren't destroyed. If you're, if you're reaping trouble, you own it. You caused it. Your fault. In fact, if you look at chapter 5 where we were, down to verse 6, he says, hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. What he's saying there is the same type of thing. If you see wheat or barley growing from the ground, you're walking by a field, you know that there's no way the wheat and the barley uh, uh, spring up from the ground unless somebody planted that. You know that. If you plant wheat, you reap wheat. If you plant barley, you reap barley. So if you're reaping trouble... This is his argument. You planted it. That's, that's all he's saying there. Stop belly aching. Stop moaning about things. Pull yourself together, man. You know, pull yourself. Stop your blubbering. You did this to yourself. Figure out what you did wrong. Look at your life, where you don't have faith, where you're not praying, not, where you're not obeying God. Make amends and everything will be fine. Everything will be good. Very practical incredibly cold comfort, miserable comfort. It would be like me going to Mary through a period of depression over the period of time that she's been there and every morning uh, saying to Mary, you know, buck up. Buck up. What's the matter with you? Stop it. Morning after morning after morning. That's miserable comfort. Why is it miserable comfort? That's the question. Because a lot of people think like that. Why is it miserable? Because it doesn't grasp the complexity of Scripture. It does not grasp the perplexity of life and things in life. You might think it's a funny thing to say, but not at all. I believe the Bible has a multi-dimensional understanding of the reality that is more nuanced and more complex than any other worldview that's out there. Eliphaz comfort. He says, stop it. You're, you're, you're doing something wrong. Get it right. 
Get it right. That, first of all, denies the complexity of human nature, of who we are as people. In first, I'll give you an example of this. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah, the man of God, cracks. He cracks. He thinks everything he has ever worked for has been wiped away, and he goes into a deep depression. So God sends an angel, right? God, you know the story. God sends an angel of the Lord to, to be with him. And the angel of the Lord shows up, and this has always amazed me. It always amazed me. What does the angel say? Nothing. Nothing. He says nothing. The angel of the Lord looks at Elijah, and the angel of the Lord cooks Elijah a meal. You know, you remember the story? He wakes him up and he says, you need strength. You need to eat something. He goes to sleep again the second time. He wakes him up a second time. He says, you still don't have strength. And he cooks him some more. Eat some more. Eat some more. Look, if we're just spiritual beings, if we're just spiritual beings or moral beings, then okay, get your list out. Start grilling people. Get your list out. Have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all known sins? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you pleaded the blood of Jesus? Have you thanked God? Claimed all the promises of God? Now those are all in the Bible. But guess what? We're not just spiritual beings. We're not just moral beings. Uh, we're relational beings as well. And maybe we need a hug. Maybe we need somebody to care for us. Maybe we need somebody to wrap their arms around us. Maybe we need to take a nap. Maybe we need rest. Maybe we need to take a walk in the woods. Religious people tend to reduce everything to spiritual and moral, so you can always get a lecture. You know, let me beat up on, let me beat up on some other people here. Uh, secular people tend to see depression as biochemical. It's always biochemical. Uh, you just need a pill. Just, you know, chill out. Here's a pill. God never reduces things like that. God never reduces things. The Bible says there's a complexity to the human nature. There's a holistic understanding of who we are as people. Eliphaz not only doesn't grasp the complexity of human nature, he doesn't grasp the complexity of the purpose of suffering, of why there's suffering going on here. In Genesis, you have a young man. Remember this story of Joseph? Here's Joseph. Remember him? Remember the story? I mean, it's a, it's a famous story. We've we all been through Sunday school. We like this story. He's pathologically doted on by his father, right? His father just adores him, favors him over all the rest of the brothers and sisters that he has, and as a result, the family system is poisoned. His brothers and sisters hate him. It's poisoned. Joseph becomes spoiled, he becomes arrogant, he becomes self-centered in his life, and out of touch with how people are seeing him or how his family feels about him. So he's on the road to a miserable life. God brings into his life horrible suffering. Years of slavery, years of imprisonment, years of asking God for things, praying, and God never answers. 
Years and years and years and years. Ever been there? Praying for things and nothing's happening. For years, God has never really answered any of your heartfelt prayers that you have. You know, or, or things that have happened in your family. Joseph went through all that suffering. But at the end of the book, see, here's the deal. We, we, get, to, we get to read, the, we, we, we get a kind of a God's eye view of things. We see the whole thing happening here. But, but, but we see him standing, and now he's prime minister of Egypt, right? We see the end of the story. Wise, humble, great, saving his family from starvation spiritually and physically. None of it could have happened without all that suffering that he went through. You say, well, it's so obvious. Now listen to me. It's so obvious. When suffering comes into your life, it's because there's some tragic flaw that God's working on. You you have a a, a flaw that God's dealing with, right? See, that's what Eliphaz thinks. But no, no. In John chapter 9... In John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples and they see a man that's born blind. You know the story here as well. I mean, you've got to look at all of Scripture. What does it have to say? The disciples say to Jesus, who sinned? Is it this guy or was it his parents that sinned? Right? Now, this is a very Job's friend kind of question. Very moralistic. Uh, I can see, so I'm not a sinner you can't see, so you must be a sinner. You're blind, so who sinned? And what does Jesus say? I'll put it on the screen. Neither. He's blind so that the glory of God can be shown in the world. I mean, there's, a bigger, there's bigger things going on here, right? Bigger things. No correction. No chastening. He didn't do anything wrong. You see, that's, that's Job. And we find that out because in the beginning of the book, God and Satan are having this debate. We know the debate. Satan looks at Job and said, he's a phony. The only reason he worships you, the only reason he loves you is he's being good because he's getting benefits from it. Bring suffering into his life. We'll see what he does. And Satan wanted to discredit him and show him up as a fraud. But as a result of the suffering, Job has a name that literally, literally lives forever. Literally, everybody knows about Job. You know, today Job is one of the most famous people who ever lived. And Eliphaz is absolutely wrong here. Absolutely wrong here. Here's the problem. And what really concerns us, Eliphaz's counsel is, is awfully close to what you hear today. And you hear people say this, if you're sick, it's because of lack of faith. You don't, have, you, don't have, you don't have the faith. Or if you're not prospering financially, you're not surrendering your life. The same thing. Same thing. It's illogical and it's moralistic. It's illogical and it's moralistic. It's illogical, first of all, because in the idea that when you start to suffer, you can figure out what God's trying to do. You can figure out what God's trying to do. You say, oh, oh, I know what God's trying to do. I, I need to change this and everything will be okay. And that's, that's stupid. That's as stupid as saying that God doesn't have a purpose. How do you know? How do you know? How do I know? 
what God's doing in that life? How do I know? God, God's abandoned. How do I know? You know? So look at Joseph. Look at Job. Look at all these stories that we see in Scripture. Really, all of them in Scripture. You can't know, even after years of going through it, what in the world is God up to? How is God doing this? What is God doing in a person's life? And, and, but we come to the understanding, that really, of all this, the meaning of grace. He sees the Bible as a record of people. Here's Eliphaz, of people who are, are living well. The people who live well get God's reward and gets God's blessing. Actually, you know what this is a record of? I know what this is a record of. This is Abraham, Job, relatively really great, good guys, Jacob, Joseph, Jonah. They all suffered. Abraham suffered. Jonah, they all suffered. They all suffered. Do you know why they suffered? Because of God's love. That's a strange thing, isn't it? Because of God's love. They suffered because God was trying to enlarge them. I said this to Mary the other night as I was saying this. I said, Mary, you know why you're going through this? God's enlarging you. Didn't go over as well as I thought. <laughs> it was going to go over. <laughs> Do you know why you suffer? God's trying to enlarge you. Be glorified in you. I, I, maybe I should have said that. Be glorified through you, in you, in your life. The Bible's not a record of people living right and getting the blessing. It's a record of people who are so broken. They're so broken that they could never arrive above their own brokenness except that the grace of God broke into their lives and changed them and ministered to them, usually in the form of disappointment or discouragement or disaster. That's what the whole book is about. Eliphaz doesn't see that. If you see that things are complex, both spiritually, relationally, in nature, you don't go in with an agenda to someone that's having difficulty, someone that's having problems, and say, well, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to, you know, but, 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 but not even just with loving support. Not even just with loving support. The angel supported Elijah. But later, right, a still small voice. Later in his life, the still small voice comes to him and challenges his false thinking. Challenges his false thinking. As a comforter, you go into people's lives with a mixture of truth and tears. Always remember that. You speak into people's lives in a mixture of truth and tears. I got a, a, a note this past week from an individual at the congregation, which I really love because it, 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 it illustrates that. And it was just a simple little comment. It says this. Our hearts ache for the trials, but rejoice with you in Christ's sufficiency. There's truth and there's tears. We ache with you, but we rejoice in Christ's sufficiency. 
That's, that's how we approach this. That's how we approach people and the difficulties that they're going through. In John 11, when Jesus, I'll give you an example from Scripture. In John 11, Jesus shows up to the, to the funeral of, of uh, Lazarus. You know, and the two sisters are there, Mary and Martha. And Martha comes up to him first, and Martha says, if you'd been here, our brother would have not died. And what does Jesus say? I'm the resurrection and the life. Truth. Truth. Almost a rebuke, right? Almost a rebuke. Just a few moments after that, Martha, or Mary, shows up, and she uses the exact same words. If you'd been here, our brother would have never died. And we're told all Jesus did was cry. He wept. He just, he, he, he melted when he felt their pain and what they were going through. And that's where our kids get all this, you know, what's your favorite verse? Jesus wept. You know, Jesus wept. You never really handle suffering without a mixture of truth and tears. Truth of Scripture and tears. Telling yourself or telling someone else the truth and weeping. That's the only humble way to go into suffering. When who in the world knows why? Who knows why? God's enlarging. God's grace is being experienced. So here's what happens now. Here, Job comes down and he does his own counseling here. And that's a good thing for us to do, people of God. Do your own counseling. Um, Nobody gets through suffering without doing some self-counseling. We all talk to ourselves. We all ask questions about what's going on in our lives. Why is this happening to us? As an example, Psalms 42. You remember the psalmist. He said this. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. He's asking a question about why is this happening to me? Who's he talking to? He's not talking to God here. He's he's not talking to, to you. He's talking to himself. He's talking, this is self-talk. You in there. <laughs> you, you in there. Why are you cast down? Why are you like this? So Job has to do his own counseling. It's not the, the best, but Job does a much better job of counseling than Eliphaz does. Now here's what he does. There's three things that happen here. First of all, in verse, chapter 6 and verse 2, there's, there's emotional realism. That's the word I'm going to use with it. He says this, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scale, it would surely outweigh the sands of the seas. What does he say? My, my pain outweighs all the, all the sands of the... It's, it's, uh, that's how he feels. Emotional realism. It's real. That's, how, that's me. Ah! That's me. And then verse 4. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. He says, I feel like God's killing me. He's he's talking real here. This is real stuff. I feel like God's killing me. I feel like God's destroying me. I feel like God's against me. There's his reality. That's what he feels. That's what's going on in his life. It's not very polite. So, number one, he's doing exactly the opposite of what Eliphaz said was, stop blubbering. Stop blubbering. Keep a stiff upper lip. No, 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 no. He's in touch. He's miserable. And he's in touch with that. 
expressing how he feels. There's emotional truth here. Secondly, he's praying. Drop down in, in chapter 6, verse 8. Look at this, where he says, it doesn't look like it at first, but, but look at it. He says, oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me what I hope for. Now, in those days, uh, the way you spoke to a great superior, a king, or a queen, was you always spoke to them in the third person, you know. Uh, if you went before the king, you said, if the king would hear my request, right? You don't really speak to the king because you just don't do that. If the king would hear my request, you don't look at the king and say, hey, king, Mr. King, you know. That's too direct. Uh, you're deferential. You're before the king. I mean, your, your life is there before the king. So you say, oh, may, the, may the queen or, or may the, the king. So you speak in the third person. You spoke to the superior always in the third person. That's what Job is doing here in this passage of scripture. But he's praying. He says, I have a, and I have a real problem with this here. When I'm looking at this, I remember going into the home of an individual and uh, it was a, just a terrible thing going on in their life. And um, uh, this person was on a treadmill and they, were, and they were screaming and yelling and swearing and, and having words with God. And it really bothered me. I said, what are you doing? What are you, don't talk to God like that. Don't talk to God like, I mean, he was just angry at life and everything that was happening to him in life. And I said, don't do that. What's the matter? You know, stop it. You know, he says, I'll talk to God any way I want to talk to God. He's big enough. And I thought, okay. Okay. He was mad. He was mad. At, he was using language I don't like. He was mad at God. And he's talking about God you're hurting, my life is hurting, my, 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 there's great harm here, and I'm being wronged. What are you doing? He's telling God how he felt. I mean, he just was just throwing it up there. At the end of the book, God actually shows up and says, you know, um, Job, you've done well. Right? Job, you've done well. And he turns to Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, and he says, Job has done well, but you guys, not happy with you, not happy with you, and you better hope that Job prays for you. Job, what do you want me to do with these guys? You know, it's almost comedic, you know, <laughs> when you think about it. But here's a huge difference between Job and these guys. You know what it is? Job says a lot of hard things, but he says them to God. He's speaking to God, and he's talking to God. He never stops talking to God. He never stops praying. He's pouring out his heart to God. He says he stays in the relationship. You understand? He doesn't say, I don't understand, but, but he, he says, I'll never stop praying. I'll never stop talking to you. Third thing he says here, verse 9. Look at this. Oh, that God would crush me. You ever feel like that? Oh, that God would crush me. Verse 10. Then I would still have this consolation. What consolation? 
crush you, kill you. You're going to have what? What's, a, what's this all? What, yeah. I have this. What is this? This comfort. I will have this comfort. Here's what it is. He goes on. He says that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Now, what does that mean? This is important. This is important. What does it mean? To deny the words of the Holy One means I have not repudiated God. Right? I'm not ignoring God's words. I haven't turned away from God. I've been faithful to God. That's what that means. The one comfort he has is a clear conscience. That I have this conscience, I have this clearness in my mind. I have not turned against God. God knows that I'm pleased with him still. And he knows God is pleased with him. And the one thing he still, that helps him through his suffering is a sense that God still loves him. God still loves him. You know what that means? Imagine the person in the, think about this. I got, I got to, actually got this out of Lord of the Rings. This one little phrase that I, that I thought, this, this is amazing. Imagine the person in the world you praise and admire the most. The person you love the most and admire the most in the whole world. Imagine that that person is praising and admiring you. There's no greater reward than that. Lord of the Rings, that was the statement. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the one who's praiseworthy. There's nothing greater than somebody you worship adoring you. There's nothing like it. Job says, as long as I've been able to keep my conscience clear, I can know that God loves me. I have not denied the words of the Holy One, and this is my comfort. And right here, and he's right, in the midst of your suffering, if you know that God loves you, if you know that God loves you, you can handle it. You can handle it. You don't know what's going on. You're confused, but you know he loves you. You can handle it. Job is saying, I'd rather lose my life than my comforts. I'd rather lose my life, uh, and I'm afraid, and here's what's happening here, I'm afraid this is slipping away from me. That's why he's saying, crush me now, because I don't want to screw this up. Crush me. Kill me. Because I'm afraid I'm going to say something or do something that's going to harm this one that I love so deeply. Therefore, he says, I'd rather lose my life than my comfort, and I'm afraid I'm about to lose the comfort, so take my life away. Take my life away. And then there's the last thing, this ultimate comfort that comes from Scripture here. Now Job is saying, so there's emotional realism where we're talking real stuff with God, and then secondly, you stay connected in prayer to God. And Job rightly says something the Bible says elsewhere here. He says, there's, there's, and he's thinking this, there's no way that I'm going to remain faithful to the words of the Holy One. Kill me. There's no way I'm going to remain faithful to the words of the Holy One. And, and, and Job is speaking something that's biblically correct here. Biblically correct. Nobody can keep the law of God perfectly. And Job is absolutely right. And Job is about ready to crack. He's about ready to crack. Everybody cracks. 
Everybody cracks. Psalms 103 says this, Lord, if you mark my sins, who would stand? Job knows that. And he's feeling things now. Therefore, in the end, Job's comfort is a good comfort, but it's not the ultimate comfort because it's not going to last. It's not going to last. Where is he going to get the ultimate comfort from? Where is it going to come for in his life? Here's where. Nobody in the history of the world ever perfectly kept the words of the Holy One, right? No. Wait a minute. There's one. There's one who did. There's one person. When Jesus Christ came, he perfectly obeyed the law of God, didn't he? Perfectly obeyed the law of God. He perfectly kept the words of the Holy One. That's the reason in John chapter 8 where he actually looks at the opponents and he says to them, who, who charges me with sin? Come on, bring it. Bring it. Who charges me? Does anyone know if anything I've ever done wrong, anything that I've said, anything ever that I've done wrong? Come on. And that's the reason why when he cut up out of the water of baptism, the Father says, now listen to me, the Father said, you are my beloved child. With you I am well pleased. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. To hear his father say, I'm pleased with you. And hear the praise of the father, I'm pleased with you. The praise of the father is above all rewards. He had it. How do we get it? How do we get it? We know we're going to fail like Job. We can't, we can't do all that. This is... You know, we don't keep the law. We know we're going to fail. We know we're not going to keep the words of the Holy One. Second Corinthians says this, chapter 5, verse 21. You know, the, you know the, the phrase. God made him sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That means that on the cross, Jesus Christ proved Eliphaz wrong. He proved Eliphaz. Eliphaz said, who being innocent, ever perished, right? Right? Who being innocent ever perished? The answer? Jesus. Jesus. What upright person was ever, never destroyed? Jesus. Anyone who reaps trouble must have sown trouble, but that's not true because Jesus reaped what we sowed. He reaped what we sowed. We sowed trouble. We sowed sin. We re- and he reaped it. Therefore, he's the true Job. Remember I said, when you look at the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. It really is. It's all about Jesus. We're told God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That means God put our sin on him so that when we believe in him, his righteousness comes to us, right? So we're righteous in him. It means that when God looks at you, When God looks at me, even though you've blown it and will blow it, you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit if you have Christ as your Savior and Lord. Job had a sense of God's love. Job had a sense of God's love. You have the presence 
of God's love in Jesus Christ in your life. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit. And here's the question. And I'll close with this. Now, now there's, before I do, there's a, there's a passage in 1 Peter. I was looking at it this morning. It, it says this. He's talking about the suffering we go through. He says, But the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you've suffered a little while, now watch, watch what happens. After you've suffered a little while, will make you perfect, established, strengthened, and will settle you. I like it. I like it. It's going to enlarge you. He's going to enlarge you. Enlarge your life. Here's the question from the old Heidelberg Catechism that was written years ago. It goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and death? And I'll close with these words. That's the question. Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has paid for all my sins with his precious blood. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him. Let's pray. Our Father, there's so much to learn as we open the Word of God and read through Scripture. and So much truth that uh, transcends the things of this world. And there's so many things we don't know. Uh, and we see this as we, we look at Job. There's so many things that happen to us that we don't understand. And we don't understand your, your purpose sometimes. We don't understand where you're taking us and we, we struggle and we go through a lot of pain. And, uh, and we got to be real. It hurts. This, this hurts. What we go through hurts. There's loss there. There's, there's anguish there. There's, there's tears uh, that are there in our lives. And not only in our lives, but we think of, of our families and, and ones that we love so deeply. And it hurts when we see uh, people that we love so deeply walking away from the things of God. But we stay connected to you. We stay connected to you. We continue in prayer. We continue lifting you up. We continue say, just addressing you and talking to you and and, and, and allowing you to speak into our hearts and our situation and our lives. And, and that, that we know, Lord, that the end of all of that is that we will be strengthened. We will be enlarged. We will be given uh, uh, the grace of God. And we want to please you. We want your praise. We want your praise. We want you to say, well done. Well done. Well done. Good, good and faithful servant. We look for that praise and that thanksgiving. Father, be with us as a family of God, as individuals and as a, a church, as the things have happened to us both in our families but in our church family as well. Uh, help us to stay faithful to you and put our trust in the grace of our almighty God. This is our heart and this is our plea. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.